0: Julia, episode six, this is a bit of a different one. If you're listening to this, hope you had a great Thanksgiving yesterday and because it was Thanksgiving yesterday, we're gonna do something a little bit different. Now that we've done five episodes on nuclear fission, we're gonna do a bit of a catch up on what's happened in the nuclear industry. Luckily things are moving fast and then a mailbag. We've gotten a bunch of questions, a bunch of feedback. YouTube comments are a new experience for me. So we have a lot of those to address.
1: Let's dive in. I was excited to get a bunch of questions and comments along the way. I thought we could start out, Packy, with just a little summary, too, of what's been going on the last few weeks. What's so exciting about nuclear right now is there's been a lot of just current events and things going on. Let's start with the first one. What is going on in Illinois? We, we talked about Governor Pritzker and what's going on related to their legislation around nuclear and the moratorium. Um, what's the latest, Paki?
0: I think it was episode one, right? We started with this idea that that Governor Pritzker vetoed the last bill that the Illinois House and Senate tried to pass to allow new nuclear to lift the moratorium that the state had on nuclear, got booed, dunked on all over Twitter. And then the House came back with new legislation that addressed some of Pritzker's concerns, Namely, they limited the size of the nuclear reactors that were in discussion that the state might be able to install or companies might be able to install in the state to 300 megawatts, so that small modular reactor range that we talked about on episode four. And lo and behold, it passed 98 to 8 in the House and 44 to 7 in the Illinois State Senate. So bipartisan support, overwhelming support, and now the bill goes back to Pritzker. We'll see if he vetoes it, but... It seems like democracy, kind of working, right? Reworking the legislation, the people having the vote, and the people saying that we want at least the option to be able to build new nuclear in the state of Illinois.
1: Totally, I, it's been such an emotional roller coaster to watch this, and I think everyone who's cheering for nuclear is like, "Come on!" Like su- such such a, such a message that the legislature is sending. And if Pritzker reads this again, like I mean. It's going to be a little bit ridiculous. You know, it's been so exciting to see everything has really been moving in the direction of pro-nuclear. Um, I'm hopeful that this is now going to pass. And it makes me really hopeful for eventually California revisiting this topic. There was briefly a bill introduced, didn't last long, didn't even make it out of committee in California. Uh, and everyone was citing nuclear waste as the issue just last year. And um, I think that if Illinois can set a precedent of actually passing this in a state where there are some very strong Democrats who have been anti-nuclear for a long time, I'm really hopeful that we could see things change in California. And there's think about like nine, nine other states that still have a moratorium, but they're slowly, slowly starting to fall. And it's great to see.
0: We'd love to see it. And it's not, you know, it's not a law saying like you must now install nuclear. All we're asking for, I think, is for nuclear to get a shot, to not be illegal, and then to compete on the economics. To that end, though, we have some bad news coming out of the Western states and NuScale. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, we've had the first setback here in um, commercial SMRs. So there's a company called NuScale, which I think we've referenced before on the show. They were the first SMR design, they've been around almost 10 years, that has been approved by the NRC. So the the first new design the NRC has approved for their small modular reactor back in August of 2022, I believe, they were set up to do an installation in Idaho with UAMPS, the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, which is a consortium of, I think, around 50 different groups, different power groups across about seven states or so. And unfortunately, Costs had been creeping up and the subscription demand that they needed to complete the project looked like it just wasn't going to make it. So they wanted to see 80% of these utilities in the region sign up and say, yeah, we want to buy power from you. You know, people were getting cold feet and, you know, they ended up canceling it because it looked like they weren't going to reach that subscription level you do see things like the price of natural gas, in, especially in the Western states where it's easy to get access to it, um, being super low. So there's you know competitive price differences there that we're feeding into this. And it's, it's just unfortunate that this was meant to be this first-of-a-kind SMR project that a lot of people were really excited about. And it looks like it's not going to come to fruition anymore. So, so setback there, unfortunately.
0: Step back there, but I mean, I think it's, you know, if you told me again in the beginning of the season before we really dove in that this was happening, be like, damn, if New Scale can't make it, it's been around for a while, it actually got approval, and then it can't actually go out and compete in the market, I would have been more concerned than I am after doing some of the episodes that we did. For example, when we talked to the founders building Vance Nuclear... A bunch of them talked about the importance of choosing your first market and explicitly said that a lot of these communities wouldn't be the first to kind of sign up and say like, yes, we want new nuclear. And so the approach that you're taking at Ontario is working with the DOD, the approach that some of the other companies are taking are going to places where nuclear probably doesn't and can't compete, particularly SMRs and advanced reactors on cost in the beginning, but it's the best and often only solution for that particular use case until you can come down the learning curve and actually make it cheap. So it's a bummer to see that this one fell through. I think these facilities were set up to start to be built and then rising interest rates and construction costs, like and all of that were just gonna go higher. But I think it speaks to the importance of choose the, the, the right customer first, And then make a lot of these things and come down the learning curve.
1: I mean, I even saw some commentary that in places where you have LNG, uh, so not just pipe natural gas, this can be more cost competitive. So exactly that point, like if you go to a place where they don't have their own carbon resources to pull from right down the road, um, you might be in a much better place to make a fission project like this happen.
0: Totally. And then there's the third one. We're going to end on a a positive note, and this one is kind of less specific, right? Like there's real legislation being enacted uh, in in Illinois. There's real kind of economic considerations at play and municipalities choosing to buy in or not uh, with UAMS. But there was a Bloomberg story last week that reported that the U.S. is leading a group of countries, including the U.K., Sweden, France, Finland, South Korea, a push to triple the nuclear power capacity installed globally by the year 2050 that they're going to introduce at the upcoming COP28 climate summit. And so we're light on details, but I think some of the things that they're talking about here, are one, a follow-on by the nuclear companies themselves, dedicating themselves to you know meeting the demand for that tripled capacity, work with the World Bank and other international financial institutions to say, like, look, we treat Nuclear, the same way that we treat wind and solar and other renewable energies, unlock that renewable and clean financing for nuclear as well. So that could be a huge improvement. I think that's one of the crazy, crazy things here, right? Is that nuclear has not been considered clean and that limits the access to financing that it gets, even though, as we've talked about many, many times, that nuclear is like the cleanest with solar and wind the source of energy that you could possibly get. So it's great to see that recognition if they actually follow through. And it's great to see the US leading the charge there.
1: Yeah. This is this is a huge shift, right? The the previous cops have never had nuclear. Like they just like there were too many people who are anti-nuclear that it wasn't even allowed to be brought up as a topic. It's really exciting to see.
0: One of the things that people always said is these like global international climate summits aren't really taking climate seriously. Like maybe they don't actually believe what they're saying if they're not including nuclear in it. And now they're including nuclear and in it's so like maybe we have something really to, to worry about on that side. But I, I think it's, it's awesome recognition. And again, just gives nuclear another shot to compete on a level playing field. Yeah, totally.
1: Well, let's dive into the questions. We've gotten a bunch of questions, comments along the way.
0: We'll answer some of these ourselves. And we've also asked some of our friends to come in where they have real expertise. And so you'll be hearing us talk about it. And you'll be hearing clips from other people kind of throughout the episode. The first one, I got a, a DM from Josh Payne who runs a nuclear startup himself. Great first two episodes of the new podcast. One thing that I didn't hear discussed on the history section was the QA, or Quality Assurance Program, and standard changes in 1969 and 1970. 1970 was when the AEC adopted a nuclear-specific QA standard and specifications. Prior to 1970, the standard and programs were the same as all other boilers, pressure vessels, and heavy industries. The QA requirements are one of the main reasons making new builds in the US so difficult. So what's going on here?
1: For this one, we turned to Jim Hoff, who I've met via some nuclear advocacy work I did around Diablo Canyon. He's a retired nuclear engineer and has written about this topic. So I'll turn it to Jim.
2: Yeah, I would say that that 1970 decision by the AEC definitely led to significantly increased costs in, for the nuclear in the future. In fact, my personal opinion is it's probably maybe one of the most important decisions ever in terms of the cost arc of you know nuclear going forward reports show that you know special nuclear grade versions of a given component compared to non-nuclear versions that are similar or identical the nuclear grade version costs like three times or several times as much and in some cases as much as 50 times as much just for that nuclear QA you know equivalent component um you know there's a saying in the nuclear industry that What the main factor determining the cost of a nuclear project is not the amount of steel or concrete, it's the amount of paper. And what they mean when they say that is documentation. And they're mainly referring to QA documentation as opposed to, say, engineering analyses or analyses done for the the NRC license. And my personal experience in the nuclear industry, I used to work in the dry cast storage industry kind of corroborates that. The nuclear grade requirements did add a lot to our amount of effort, the amount of time, the amount of cost. When the dry cast storage industry was in its infancy and my company was there, we actually used typical industrial suppliers for our steel and concrete cast components. But after the NRC kind of got wind of that and clamped down, those suppliers, either they greatly increased their costs or they actually gave up entirely. Now, I should also say that, you know, much higher costs that we see for nuclear grade components, it's not just due to the fact that the nuclear QA program requirements are a lot stricter and more onerous, but it's also simply because the nuclear's QA program is very unique and different. It's different from standard industrial QA programs that are, you know, we generally see. And that results in a much smaller supply chain that you can use that inherently would have much higher costs just in and of itself, the size of the supply chain before you even talk about how much stricter you know the requirements are. Now, another alternative might be to try to go to these large suppliers and ask them, it's like, well, your equivalent component, can you also provide that for us? But we're going to need you to use all of a sudden use this entirely different QA program. And there was this report by the IAEA, which studied supply chain issues for SMRs and maybe nuclear in general. And one of their main points was was that if you ask a large scale non nuclear supplier to all of a sudden switch over to a totally different QA program for this one relatively low volume supplier, not only will it lead to much higher costs for the nuclear grade components at least, but it might even acts to reduce quality you know because they're kind of switching around you know they they had it down to a science for their non-nuclear equivalent products with the, the standard industrial QA program they have a lot of experience with it now you're asking us to all of a sudden shift gears you know it's very uh disruptive and that same report kind of came to the conclusion like if SMRs or maybe nuclear generals to be deployed at scale at an affordable cost in the future they're going to have to use a lot more industry-grade as opposed to nuclear-grade qualified components for a lot of the components that go into the plant, you know, if we want to build it at scale. So, you know, this is a very important issue. The industries that these non-nuclear suppliers were providing for, it doesn't mean they were non-safety industries. A lot of these industries actually require very high degrees of safety. You know, whether it's bridges or buildings or airplanes, you know, it's not like nuclear is the only... Industry that needs a high level of safety, and those suppliers have been achieving a high degree of safety with their own QA program. And you know, frankly, a lot of these industries like if a bridge falls down, a tall building tips over, or a plane crashes, you know, as we both know, that'll actually cause more deaths than a nuclear accident would. So, you know, I, my one of my big points of view is that why? You know, why is this necessary? And I'm a big believer in that. Yes, if we switched over to kind of more reasonable QA requirements, or perhaps even, you know, uh, QA requirements that are out there, I personally think that it would cause a very significant drop in the cost of uh, reactors going forwards, perhaps like this IAE reports, that uh, perhaps SMRs in particular.
0: The point on QA from Josh and then Jim's answer just shows how deep this whole thing goes, right? Yeah. Like we went to an insane level of detail and one of the first pieces of feedback we got was you missed this other piece of detail. So I think it just shows how complex this whole topic is and how many pieces need to be kind of uh, unwound and, and worked on in order to make nuclear competitive again. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. For this next one, this one comes from YouTube commenter at Ribbonwing, who said, I'd love to see a follow-up comparing and contrasting this with other countries. Talks about the fact that France had a fairly successful nuclear program, but doesn't seem all of that impressed by it. Uh, and then that both the Soviets and the Chinese have nuclear power, but they don't seem to have had that much more luck with it than we did. So why haven't they been more successful than we were? I'm going to give this one to you because it's, it's a toughie.
1: This is a great one, and I'm happy to see they called out France because France decided to, back in the 70s, make a big commitment to nuclear. They are now almost 75% of their grid run on nuclear energy, and um, it's been huge for them, both on the cost of generation um, and then uh, meeting carbon goals, and that's something that that region cares a lot about. And unlike Germany, which has been progressively shutting off their nuclear ever since 2011 when Fukushima happened and they committed to getting rid of nuclear in their country entirely, um, which they achieved earlier this year, shutting down the last few nuclear plants um, and turning coal on, France remains a country with a much more stable grid uh, and certainly a cleaner grid. The Soviet Union and now Russia and China are both ones building more nuclear right now than anyone else in the world, certainly more than the U.S., China's interesting, though, because they are new to the nuclear game, relatively speaking. They're only kind of single-digit percentage of their grid on nuclear right now. They have made a big commitment to lowering carbon emissions. You'll see that with their commitment to building out solar as well as nuclear. And they're actually experimenting with different designs. They've done at least one AP1000. They're also trying to do molten salt right now in China. So I give them a lot of credit for really going for it. Time will tell on how this all plays out and if they're able to get all of these reactors online, but it seems pretty promising thus far. And um, I'm sure that we're going to see them expand this into Belt and Road initiatives, so going into other countries and then offering them nuclear power programs in the format of of loans. And I I think that the U.S., this is one of those things, like the U.S. should be getting involved here. And, And people have been starting to talk about the U.S. needing to get back to being a leader on exporting things like nuclear technology. So glad to see that happening. Um, China's making it happen. Russia has about the same percentage of their grid um, that's from nuclear energy as the U.S. does, so just under 20%. And, you know, they have abundant natural resources in terms of natural gas, oil, coal. So I imagine that's maybe one of the reasons why they haven't gone up to a higher percentage of their grid being nuclear. But they're also exporting, so they take it seriously. Um, they have a bunch of different types of reactors online in the Soviet Union, so they're doing a great job too. And last thing I'll point out is that Ukraine, uh, which was formerly part of the Soviet Union, has about 55% of its grid from Whoa. nuclear energy, so, so almost as high as France. So I give you know kudos to them, and this is where Chernobyl is based, for being committed to nuclear energy, and I think having that work well for them in terms of energy security.
0: There's a, a lot in that one. I mean, first, yeah, the the premise of the question that France hasn't had spectacular results. I mean, I think particularly to your point, when you compare and contrast it with Germany, they haven't had to shut down industry in France, to the extent that there is industry in France, and people, you know, work more than than thirty five hours a week. But like, I, I think France is a success story. I think it was threatened recently, right, and then uh, Macron pushed back, and they ended up keeping their their nuclear capacity online. So big win for France there. China is going to be this amazing kind of miracle project if it works, where they're going to triple the capacity that they have, maybe even quadruple the capacity that they have on the grid over the next decade. Isaiah, on a previous episode, mentioned that China is kind of using old designs and just repeating them and and manufacturing them at scale, and they can take the land and, and kind of put it wherever. And so it'll be cool to see if they can actually get things done kind of quickly and cheaply. They're estimating 2 to $3 billion uh, per gigawatt, which is a lot cheaper than we do it here. And you're right. I think probably one of the reasons that that COP28 announcement, or rumor at least, uh, coming out of the U.S., is probably because the U.S. wants to start exporting these things as well, just like we want our AI to spread across the world instead of China's AI. I would imagine that we also want to be the ones providing power to the rest of the world. And if China's doing it, it's actually this really good for the world kind of uh, competition between the U.S. and China. I like these proxy wars where it's you know uh, on nuclear energy and getting more energy to, to more countries. And so hopefully we keep spurring each other to do more on that front.
1: I love that point, Paki. And we've talked about this, you know, the nuclear energy cold war. Let's bring it back and start competing to um to do good things on um long time horizons, right? Like build nuclear power. So uh, yeah, let's let's make that happen. Amen. This next comment here is about solar. And we covered this briefly, talking about LCOE or the cost of putting new solar on the grid. And the comment here is about did we miss some things? Um uh, we included some things, didn't mention others. We'll pause here for a second to dive a little bit deeper into the solar cost curves with Robert Bryce, who's an author who wrote Power Hungry, a book that talks about the myths of green energy. He is a skeptic of renewables. We will dive much more into the topic of solar in our next episode, where we cover all the different energy sources that are out there beyond just nuclear. So we're getting the full energy landscape. So a lot more to come. We'll hear from some very pro-solar people as well on the next episode.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Robert Bryce. I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm an author, I'm a film producer, and I'm a podcaster. And I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about energy and power systems, and in particular, looking at which systems are being promoted, which systems are, are getting a lot of press. And there's no doubt that solar energy gets a lot of attention. And there are a lot of claims uh, of people saying, oh, solar is getting cheaper, and there it's the cheapest form of generation, and therefore we should go uh, completely solar. There are a number of advantages with solar, right? It runs on the sun. I I get it. And the the cost of solar has gone down. But there are a lot of serious problems, including, of course, the intermittency issue, uh, Chinese supply chains, including uh, forced labor, Uyghur slave labor in in some of these Chinese supply chains. Uh, But the fundamental problem, as I've reported over and over again, these land use issues, these land use conflicts, are raging all across the country. And that's the reality. Uh, I just updated the, the renewable rejection database. In 2020, there were uh, just two solar rejections. So far this year, there have been, I think it's 65 solar rejections. Um, and in 2022, there were 88 um, and so it's happening all across the country. In just the last month or so, there have been rejections in Kansas, bans on uh, uh, wind and solar in Kansas, in Harvey County, Kansas, and Venango Township. Uh, the Planning Commission, Venango uh, Township is in in Pennsylvania. Uh, they just rejected an 80 megawatt solar project that was going to cover something like 900 acres of the township uh, with solar panels. So it doesn't fit the narrative that you hear from these big NGOs that are promoting uh renewables but this this is the reality And uh, uh, no one has ever questioned the numbers that I have in the renewable rejection database, Um, but the numbers are the numbers. And they're not my numbers. They are the numbers. You can check them out yourself. So at your convenience, check out the renewable rejection database. Uh, I'm proud of that work. Um, And I think it's important to understand what the limits are, what the the values and, and attributes of various forms of energy generation are. But we also have to take a very sober look at the downsides. Land use is the downside for both wind and solar. You can find me on Substack, RobertBryce.substack.com. Thanks a lot.
1: This next one is from Smoke Cakes on X. What sectors are the biggest winners from getting nuclear to a transformative price? What would the effect on society look like? I can think of desalination becoming relevant for large-scale agriculture, data and AI centers becoming energy unconstrained,
0: This is one of my favorite questions. It's actually one that we're going to dedicate an entire episode to, the last episode of the season. The point, as we've kind of talked about this whole time, isn't just to have more nuclear energy or more energy. The point is to be able to do the things that having more energy, cheap, clean, abundant energy allows you to do. So certainly desalination is one of them. Certainly as it stands, uh, data centers for AI are incredibly power hungry and are going to demand a lot more energy. There's a bunch of really cool things that we're going to be able to do if we have more energy. If you look at the history of human progress and GDP growth, it tracks really, really well to how much energy either you know humanity at a given time or certain countries uh, are able to consume. And so the world gets better with more energy. But we're going to save the specifics for episode 10.
1: This next one is from ManilaZilla on X. Would love to hear your views on investing in nuclear physical sprout ETF, miners, et cetera, and viability of uranium itself if fusion takes off. We'll hear from Tim Rotolo of Range Fund Holdings
0: for this one. So this was a super timely question because we actually are introducing a new sponsor to the podcast, Range Fund Holdings. They have a nuclear ETF launching in December, and we're really excited to bring them on as a sponsor of the show. Timothy Rotolo, uh, who works for Range Fund Holdings, actually gave us an answer on this one. He wants us to let you know that this is not investment advice. Full disclosure, their investment advisors manage a uranium-focused strategy and entities that he controls manage uranium mining index products. They may own securities discussed here. With that caveat, he's an expert. He's thought more about nuclear ETFs than maybe anybody in the world and certainly anybody that I've ever met. And here's his personal opinion. Tim told us, my personal opinion is that fusion is far from broad commercialization and even further from broad deployment. Uranium is a cyclical commodity, so the current investment opportunity will likely be in the rearview mirror if and when fusion is a practical reality competing with uranium demand. The investment opportunity set for nuclear to date has been narrowly focused on uranium and uranium mining. In his opinion, or as he says, in my opinion, there are two separate and distinct opportunities today. First, the supply deficit-driven situation in uranium remains quite attractive, but it's a historically cyclical commodity. Second, the demand-driven nuclear renaissance offers secular opportunities across niche fuel providers, advanced reactor technology companies, service companies, utilities, and more. The supply-deficit-driven uranium opportunity, and the simple thesis here is that the price of uranium needs to rise to incentivize new production in order to fill the supply deficit. The fact that we've talked about a bunch that the uranium supply chain is a little bit tricky and broken has several ways to gain exposure. There's a spectrum based on your capital size, risk, and illiquidity tolerance, etc. For simplicity purposes, he'll discuss the public opportunities, though there are private, direct, and fund investments available. One global caveat, uranium is a highly volatile commodity with a very real left-tail risk in the form of a nuclear meltdown. This is a very small risk, but it's real and would likely cause a large sell-off, so worth noting. One is to own physical uranium proxies via exchange-listed funds. Sprout Physical Uranium Trust or Yellowcake in London. There are some pros, they're reasonably liquid, they track the price of spot uranium, and cons, which is they can trade to a large discount with no direct mechanism to close it, can experience equity volatility due to exchange trading or inclusion in ETFs. There are the Sprott Uranium Miners or URNM. For non-US investors, there are also versions available in Europe and Australia. The pro there is it's a pure play with exposure to equities and physical uranium. And the con is that it's volatile and less liquid for large investors. There's Global X URA. Pros, very liquid. Con, it's only 75% pure play uranium and 25% nuclear services. Sprout Junior uranium miners, the pros are it's a liquid way to play the junior exploration and near-term producers. The con is that it's very volatile and companies here will require more capital and dilute equity owners. Then there's single-name stocks. You can use the ETF as a reference and start doing your own research. The pros are that it's potentially more upside if you can identify something in the ETF you like more. The cons are that they're highly idiosyncratic. There could be mining issues, management issues, risk of dilution, all of which can impact returns. There's also an emerging opportunity in the demand-driven nuclear renaissance. This is not quite as obvious as uranium and is more of a picks-and-shovels play. Service providers, companies constructing reactors, etc., Today, the primary option is to own individual securities, but they've created an index. The symbol on Bloomberg is N-U-K-Z-X, and we'll put a link in the show notes. An ETF tracking the index has been filed. It attempts to capture the entire supply chain from fuel to advanced reactors, service providers, and utilities. There's minimal mining exposure with only one stock with mining operations. So all of that, again, not investment advice, but an interesting way to think about how you might invest in nuclear in the public markets, if that's something that you're interested in.
1: This next one, also an X comment from D.A. McCormick, Packy's brother. If we get energy right in the next 10 years, do any of the things we currently consider eco-friendly in our individual lives actually matter, i.e. recycling, paper straws, not using plastic bottles, etc.? Packy, what do you make of this
0: one? I mean... Paper straws can can get lost. If we never use a paper straw again, uh, I'll be happy. I mean, to me, the way that I always think about it is there's this like this Sankey chart, and there's different things. I mean, like pollution and waste are a different thing than energy usage and and you know carbon being released into the atmosphere. We don't want a planet full of litter. We don't want fish and dolphins, uh, you know, choking on the soda can holders. Like all of those things, we don't want. But I do think the broader point of the question is that we. Major in the minors, so to speak, on a lot of things. We focus on these little paper straws while opposing nuclear. We have these like big chunky energy solutions on the sources side, and then we kind of like spend all of our time thinking about the uses side. Like, I turn off a light bulb uh, and save like this tiny tiny bit of energy. That's great if that's something that you want to prioritize in your life. But I think to me, the most important thing you can do is just put more clean energy on the grid cheaply. See, I, th- I think conservation is a bit of a dead end generally and really is like maybe something that people feel that they can control in their lives, but that really, really doesn't make that big an impact compared to just putting more nuclear or solar or whatever else your preferred clean energy sources online.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of penny-wise, pound-foolish type of environmental activism going on. And again, no problem with for, you know, for any of us, I think if you if you want to use a paper straw great, right? But I think the most important thing here is that we are cultivating an environment where we're constantly innovating, we're oriented around progress, we are deregulating where we can, so we're just not all tied up in all this red tape. Um, and all of that If we can have an environment like that, we're just going to be moving so quickly towards things that are ultimately, in the end, um, much more environmentally friendly and also positive for humanity and and human flourishing.
0: I think that's such a good way to put it. I mean, there's a couple of really great examples that I love here. One is just direct air capture, which we talked about uh, with Valor Atomics. We'll talk about with Casey at Terraform Industries on the next episode. But this idea that this like huge, huge, huge problem that we have, that there's too much carbon being released into the atmosphere, might actually just have a technological solution, which is if you have cheap enough energy and abundant enough energy, you just pull it right out of the air and either put it in rocks or do something productive with it. So that's the one. There's also this great book that if you haven't read it uh, this deep into the season, you absolutely should. It's The Case for Nukes by Robert Zubrin. He also wrote The Case for Space and The Case for Mars, which were part of inspiring Elon at SpaceX and Delian and Ibarta to go start those space companies. It's like a great aggressive pro-nuclear fission and fusion book. And one of the points that he makes is at some point we get fusion advanced enough that you just shoot the plasma at like the landfills that we have and that all the materials that we've used and you break them down back into their component elements and get to use it again, his like big contention is that there are no natural resources other than human intelligence. Like everything in the ground is useless until we figure out how to use it. And we can figure out how to kind of reuse uh, as soon as we kind of get to that energy abundance and we get fusion that can just break everything down. So if you want to recycle, I mean, you have to recycle it. I think it's against the law, not to in a lot of places, so do that. But if you want to use paper straws, knock yourself out, but I think hopefully the goal that we're going for here is a world in which you don't have to worry about paper straws.
1: Speaking of human intelligence and human ingenuity, we have a comment here from P McCran on X. Let's get Palmer Lucky on. The latest episode segment of Pirate Wires was on nuclear weapons and how the U.S. went too far in turning nuclear off. Uh, And my response to that is come join us anytime, Palmer.
0: Amen. Next one on X is Jack Calvin Ross. Interested to hear y'all's thoughts on nuclear waste recycling and reuse. Seems huge, but can't tell if it's just a new shiny thing in the space. What do you think, Julia?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. I, I think this is one of those distraction problems where, again, nice to have. Like, would love to see more recycling. Um, would love to see some of that innovation around even, you know, nuclear reactors themselves that can be run on waste. But we're missing the point here. We need to start building more nuclear power so we can get more clean energy online As we know and what we talked about in some of our earlier episodes, nuclear waste itself leaves a very tiny footprint and hasn't harmed anyone since it's been around. So as we mentioned, the nuclear waste we've used in the U.S. over the past several decades can all fit on a football field and is stored on site in concrete casks. We have a great system to do it. To me, it's like not a problem to prioritize solving right now when we're not even able to get new nuclear power plants online. Um, so I would say it's a little bit of a shiny shiny object distraction.
0: That's a great answer. I love that we're doing it real here. I guess my one question would be, does it help maybe with approval? If you can say, like, I have this new plant and the thing that it does is it eats all the waste that you're worried about and uses it as fuel. Do you think maybe the NRC or just Congress looks on that more favorably?
1: I don't think it matters, actually. The NRC. Well, first I'll say this is that's a new design. <laughs> so you're just <laughs> talking about long, long timelines to even get something like that passed, right? The NRC hasn't regulated anything like that before. Um, so there is a big hurdle. Not to say it's not worth going for, but there's a huge hurdle there. And then the second thing is again, that's not the issue that you know is stopping people in terms of being able to get licensed um, or to build something new. Like we have the waste. Issue uh, relatively solved. I guess the one area where you're you're seeing this be an issue still is in California, for example. When they did try to pass the bill to overturn the moratorium on nuclear in California, the number one reason cited by the people who said no to it were saying we don't have a solution to nuclear waste. So there are some people who are still holding themselves back, I would say, uh, on this topic. But in the macro sense, um, I think it's a small topic. I think we have a lot of other ways where we need to just be pushing the industry forward and shouldn't get bogged down in any waste waste questions.
0: I love it. Trey Lauderdale, who's out there fighting the good fight and trying to extend Diablo Canyon and even expand Diablo Canyon, he asked us a question on X, which is, he'd love to see an episode on who are the leading investors in the space? How developed is the ecosystem of angels, early stage VC, late stage VC, PE, and strategics? You just actually got off a fundraising process for a nuclear company. So give us a little bit of an overview of the landscape. Yeah, I love this
1: question. I mean, nuclear is having a resurgence right now over the last several years, maybe about a decade or so. Many companies have started up, but this is not a category that's massive, right? And you almost wouldn't want to see like hundreds upon hundreds of companies because then we might be spreading ourselves a bit too thin in terms of talent and other things. I would say it's it's kind of a niche within the hard tech category. And um, there are some people who are going directly at nuclear as a category. Rod, who we've had on the show, has nucleation capital, which is entirely focused on the nuclear industry. And you get some great benefits of you know when you're really deep on a topic you um are very well informed coming into analyzing companies and making decisions on investing so um that's a niche to be in but but most investors have nuclear as one part of a larger portfolio sometimes it's a larger portfolio that's exclusively hard tech focused or like for example a16z american dynamism portfolio um they have nuclear you know have nuclear as part of a broader category there and then there are others who are generalist investors who are just starting to get more interested in the hard tech category and including nuclear in there. So I think we see a range, but broadly, you know, nuclear is going to be one of many across a portfolio.
0: I love that. Yeah, I think Rod and then we had Catherine obviously talk about the way that she sees the, the world of energy, where Catherine thinks that, you know, it's a category that kind of supports one absolutely massive winner, whereas Rod... Explicitly told us that he thinks that it's a category where there's going to be a lot of different types of reactors and sizes serving different end markets. And so that's kind of two different philosophical approaches. I think fund size also matters, right? For American Dynamism at A16Z, they're probably trying to look for, you know, these really, really big companies that can kind of own the market. And for someone like Rod at Nucleation Capital focused on nuclear with a smaller fund, you can get these like pretty good outcomes across a bunch of different categories. But the space is so early, it seems like there's a lot to a left to be worked out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this next question is from Michelle Cansey on X. What's the policy playbook in the West to shift investments from renewables to nuclear? Let's turn it over to Brett Rampell. He used to do nuclear policy over
4: at Clean Air Task Force. I'm Brett Rampal. I'm the Director of Nuclear and Power Strategies at Veriton and also the Chief Technical Analyst at Segre Capital Man. Today's best sort of policy levers to consider around enticing investment in nuclear energy are really some of the same things the industry and advocates have been asking for for decades. Equal consideration with other clean energy technologies in a more even playing field. The recent passage of technology-inclusive clean energy tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, uh, really changed the calculus for many investors uh, considering the nuclear space. And we've seen announcements and commitments from companies directly in response to these new incentives. These tax credits throw future nuclear energy uh, technology projects in the same hopper as other clean energy technologies. And on top of the IRA uh, tax credits for existing nuclear power plants really changes the entire landscape of thinking around nuclear energy. However, beyond continuing to seek and improve and try to gain that more even playing field, Numerous other policy areas remain that could be addressed to support increased investment in Western nuclear projects, such as supporting domestic and global uranium enrichment and conversion capacity to limit Russian involvement in Western fuel cycle activities, support for the, deploy- the development of nuclear fuel manufacturing, as well as additional nuclear supply chain manufacturing activities, meaningful action on spent nuclear fuel management, support for domestic nuclear research reactor capabilities for testing and qualifying future nuclear technologies, cooperative policy across the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, NASA, and other government entities currently engaging in nuclear energy demonstration activities to share lessons learned as well as potential resources, cooperative policy across international borders to limit serial regulatory burdens, as well as the regulatory burdens of newcomer nations. And finally, but not least, oversight and additional support for already under development domestic regulatory frameworks for future nuclear technologies. These are just several examples of strong policy levers that could be, uh, that could be handled and thrown that could entice more investment for nuclear energy.
0: All right. At Miss Murph on X is giving us a layup to start. You're at a dinner party with interesting and interested people. No one is deeply knowledgeable about nuclear per se. Someone comments nuclear is bad because nuclear waste is bad. What is your single sentence reply? Nuclear
1: waste has a tiny footprint the size of a football field for all of the waste we've ever generated in the U.S. in the past few decades, and we have a playbook to manage it on-site at power plants, and it's never caused anyone any harm.
0: That was a great answer. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to say that my one sentence is, hey, check out this chart. The chart is from Hannah Ritchie, who works with Our World in Data, and it's hypothetical cumulative waste generation per person over 25 years in the U.K., striking chart, because on the left side, you have municipal waste at 12,125 kilograms. In the middle, you have solar photovoltaic cells at 201 kilograms. Then you go all the way over to the right, 3.69 kilograms nuclear. It's this like tiny, 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 we'll tell you in a million different ways, the football field thing, the fact that they can store it, but it's this like really, really tiny amount of waste. And I trust humanity to be able to deal with amounts of waste that small in a safe way.
1: Okay. Next one here from Kornasor on X, will it take a crisis to create the necessary conditions for more political support of the AP1000? Think Winter Storm Elliott, but if more gas lines froze up and we had a big blackout. I mean, I think what's interesting here is this points out gas lines, right? Natural gas is not as resilient maybe as we might think. And it's also incredibly volatile in terms of pricing. We've seen a lot more natural gas come online in the U.S. in the last decade or two. That has been the leading driver in reducing our carbon emissions, right? You change out coal for natural gas, which is less than half of the level of carbon emissions. But that's not going to be something we want to kind of like wholly replace our grid with. We know that when uh, we build out renewables today, we build out peaker plants with natural gas, typically natural gas, to go alongside them that run when the renewables are not generating and there's still demand on on the grid but we don't want to just, you know, now go like majority natural gas grid, which actually 50% of California is natural gas and then have issues with that. So, yes, I think you know, like a big blackout like this would cause some more awareness, but it's all about the narrative that's being told. So, when people, you know, the whatever whatever narrative the media grabs onto in terms of like, you know, what caused the storm and what should we do about it, you know, what why should we care is going to be the most important part. So, the fact that More people are aware of nuclear energy now. There are a lot of advocates working tirelessly to help get the message out. Um, I think that's gonna be important in terms of letting people understand why nuclear is a great resilient form of energy and why people should be demanding that from their politicians, from their local utility, um, to build out. Nuclear is not gonna be fast to build, so it's not gonna be a quick fix to blackout issues. And it's gonna be something that people are going to all agree needs to be done for the long term.
0: I mean, when, when you put it that way, it's it does seem very hard, right? The two things that people are not good at, which is patience and kind of giving up something now for something in the future. And then the media narrative piece, I think it's a great point and is like really, really, really hard, even if you have facts on your side. We're recording this a couple of days after SpaceX's second Starship launch attempt which was a success by every goal that they set out. They went farther than they were expecting to. The separation of the two stages happened beautifully. And there's these like incredible images that anybody with a heart and soul should be inspired by. And then you look at the press, tech press, Traditional press and it's like SpaceX rocket blows up again. It's like how is that the story that you take away from that? And so like getting that narrative right when the media has like uh, an impression of something in their mind, or even when it's hard to understand. Like yes, it, maybe if you haven't thought about it before, the fact that a rocket blows up at any point in the mission like doesn't sound very good. Uh, and like maybe there's some you know more communication that can be done there. Maybe it's just that papers sell more when they talk about rocket blowups as opposed to successes, but I do think that's a really, really hard thing to change and we're doing our darndest over here to to help change it, but we need everybody listening to go spread the word. All right, this next question also from X comes from at J.A. Bridge. He's asking for a deeper dive into developing nuclear projects, including a discussion of grid interconnection challenges and the regulatory approval process. He has a follow-up question here, which is exactly how are new gen reactors safer when it comes to meltdowns? And how are they protected against tsunamis and missiles? Julia, I'm going to turn this one back over to you.
1: This is a great question. We talked a little bit about this on episode five when we talked about advanced reactors and the new passive safety mechanisms that they're building in. So unlike the pressurized water reactors that have come before, for example, Fukushima, those required external power to control the systems that would prevent a meltdown from happening. And this is actually what caused the accident at Fukushima. The tsunami flooded the area where they had the backup diesel generators. The power went down and therefore the core was not able to be managed and we saw the meltdown occur. So that's the the big difference here these passive safety mechanisms where you don't rely on that external power. As far as tsunamis and missiles, The big difference here is the fuel that will be used by the new generation reactors called Triso, which we mentioned in the the previous episode as well. These are small silicon carbide coated uranium little mini pellets like size of a poppy seed um, that are designed to be able to withstand kinetic impact. So instead of kinetic impact causing some sort of like emission of radiation and radiation release... You have these silicon carbide coated, which is like one of the hardest materials in the world, think like diamond strength, that hold in the fission products and are much more resilient against any sort of kinetic impact.
0: And he also asked about the uh, you know, the regulatory approval process, and the point on TRISO is a good one. Do we have a sense for, in the regulatory approval process, in kind of like the, the clearance space around a plant, whether TRISO is going to be able to replace a lot of the, you know, extra built-in constructed safety requirements that, you know, prevent against being hit by a 747?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I will say that TRISO has been developed with the DOE and the DOE. So it's been sort of government blessed along the way, which is very helpful to have instead of something, you know, new coming out of, coming out of industry. Um, So it's got sort of that level of approval thus far, although to my knowledge, we're not commercially using TRISO anywhere yet. And has a very nascent supply chain. As far as that, you know, safety zone or that exclusion zone around the plant itself, the NRC, to their credit, actually approved a design um, from one of the SMR companies that allowed them to have a smaller exclusion zone, so a, sm- a smaller sort of safety security zone around the plant, uh, because they did agree that this smaller form factor reactor shouldn't need to require the same amount of space around it. And so it was. It was really. Po- people were very excited to see them make a very like good common sense decision. That was you know it's moving our industry forward.
0: We're not asking for a lot. Just some good common sense decisions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. And then I guess our our last one here, and this is an anonymous DM that I got from a super talented young person who's interested in getting into nuclear. He asked, "What are some ways to get involved in nuclear? I'm passionate about it, but not sure how to make an impact." And he has a very impressive kind of PhD in in machine learning from Stanford. And so like, what are ways, I guess the better way to ask the question is like, what are ways for generally really smart young people to get involved in and make an impact in nuclear?
1: I love this question. Um, I say there's a few ways. One is to work in the industry. So go work at a company. Maybe it's one of the new advanced reactor startups. Maybe it's a more traditional firm. And uh, there are plenty of roles, right? Just like any company, you might be an engineer there, but you also might work on the PR team or something else. Um, so there's definitely the go industry, go commercial route. There's also the go think tank, uh, nonprofit route. There are several organizations now, certainly not as many as the, the standard environmental organizations, but there are some forward thinking organizations such as Clean Our Task Force, Third Way is another very interesting one, Clear Path that are pro-nuclear in their stance and um, are looking for people to be a part of their policy teams, research teams. That's an interesting one. And then the final way would be to get involved with advocacy. And there are several organizations, some of which I got involved with over the last year and a half, who welcomed me, honestly, with open arms, kind of taught me what I didn't know. And I got some interesting exposure to what happens at state level in terms of legislating and organizing to inform our leaders about what we believe about nuclear and how they can change policy to be more supportive of it. I'll turn it over to Heather Hoff now, who I met. She leads an organization called Mothers for Nuclear. I actually have a great t-shirt that I used to wear around when I was pregnant. <laughs> it just says Mothers for Nuclear. Amazing. Um, and I think probably raised a few eyebrows here and there. I had actually one person approach me to chat about it. Um, But she started this cool organization. She works at the Diablo Canyon power plant, nuclear power plant here in California. And I'll I'll turn it to her to talk a little bit about starting Mothers for Nuclear.
5: I'm Heather Hoff. I run a pro-nuclear advocacy group called Mothers for Nuclear. And a question that I get a lot of the time is what people can do to help um, support nuclear energy and be more involved in the pro-nuclear movement. And there's so many great answers to this. First of all, there are a lot of different types of advocacy groups for nuclear and um, Generation Atomic is one of them. They have a great map on their website of other partner organizations around the country and the world that you can join and be a part of, monitor their newsletters, read their um, you know social media, share their social media. That's a great way to be involved. I'm wearing pro-nuclear merchandise, is another way to show your support for nuclear. I think if we're going to build new nuclear, advanced um, technology in the next generation, we need to show our policymakers that there is public support. And one of the best ways to do that is to just have an outswelling of support on social media, sharing stickers, on your phones, on your computers, on your cars, electric cars. Split, don't emit. That's one of my favorites. Um, all these things can help demonstrate that normal people like you and me support nuclear energy.
1: So great to hear from Heather. Also want to turn it over to Paris Ortiz-Wines. She's the global director for the organization Stand Up for Nuclear. I reached out to the stand-up team cold via the internet and Paris invited me to join her group um, that meets people regularly to discuss areas that they can go get involved in championing nuclear. And I'll, I'll turn it over to her to talk a little bit more about stand-up.
6: My name is Paris Ortiz-Wines, and I am the global organizer of Stand Up for Nuclear, a global initiative that advocates for the protection and expansion of nuclear energy. I love this question of how do you make an impact? How do you get started? So there's two things that you can do. So the first one is to get acclimated with the energy conversation, the space. You know, What are people saying about nuclear? What are they saying about energy in general? We have to know these things so that we learn how to be effective communicators and kind of see where we need to push and pull with this issue. Go ahead and give a couple of these resources a look into. So first one would be the Breakthrough Institute. They have great thought pieces on energy, on nuclear, on policy about Energy here in the States. The second one would be Decouple Media Podcast. So they have all episodes covering nuclear energy, energy in general, solar, wind, grid complexities. They are great resources and many of our advocates that we have in our network um, have been featured on that podcast. And the third one would be electricity maps. So if you'd like to know where our power comes from day to day, every hour, you know, what electricity actually looks like in your uh, location, in your region, uh, go ahead and give them a look into. You can go on their website. It's completely free. And many of us advocates uh, check on this because this is how we're able to check, you know, greenwashing uh, statements of like, we ran on 100% renewables and we can check day to day with the data. The second thing is is there's already people in the space, right? There's numerous pro-nuclear organizations that focus on advocacy. So us at Stand Up For Nuclear, we get many messages reaching out like, how can I get involved in nuclear? Do you know more? Can you connect me with others? And so I would encourage you to reach out to us, connect with us. And then of course, our friends at Mothers for Nuclear, they're an established nonprofit here in California who have been around since 2016 and were instrumental in the fight for Diablo Canyon here in California. And then we have our friends at Generation Atomic have done great work specifically around nuclear energy and policy and have done some great actions and easy actions that many people can join. And then finally, our friends at Nuclear New York, it is state-based, But what they're doing is uniting the climate and union group. So go ahead and take a look at those resources. Get yourself familiarized with what's going on, energy conversation. Make the connections. Follow some of these people on social media. Um, We're on Twitter and we have a couple lists. The U.S. allies, global allies. And then also just know that advocacy is a wide range of things that you can do. So don't be intimidated and I wish you luck.
0: I love the idea of getting involved in advocacy, and I think, you know, it's well-timed. We wanted to do this mailbag kind of, you know, we missed Thanksgiving Day itself, so you're not going to be able to bombard people with the information from this at your Thanksgiving table, but hopefully you're still with your families, with your friends from home, and having conversations with people about what's interesting to you recently spread the word as we've been saying all season we want this to move kind of outside of tech circles i think tech people now generally kind of agree that nuclear is a great thing we need to make it cheaper we need better regulation but wherever you are in the country or the world tell your friends about nuclear and why why you're excited about it and what they can do in also
1: oh yeah and we got the the holiday season continues into december so plenty of plenty of opportunity coming going forward
0: Juliet, have a great rest of your Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Hope you enjoy your leftovers. And we'll be back for next episode, episode seven, where we let a bunch of really smart people tell us why we're wrong and why other energy sources are going to be the winners.
1: Thanks, Faki. I'm looking forward to the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening and watching to this episode of Age of Miracles. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and share. And if you're feeling really generous, tell us what you think in the comments. Plus, we have a ton of resources and references in our resource hub if you want to go deeper. And we've linked them all in the show notes below. See you next week.